Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a Mai Tai. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a hard apple cider, and on this week's episode, we'll be diving into the murder of Tim McLean. His death was shocking in multiple ways, from the randomness of how he was chosen, the brutality shown by the perpetrator, and the connection to one of the world's oldest taboos, cannibalism. Timothy McLean was a 22-year-old Canadian who was a carnival barker working in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. After the fair, he planned to return home to Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, and departed Edmonton on a Greyhound bus 1170 heading to Winnipeg via the Yellow Highway in Saskatchewan on July 30th, 2008. He sat in the rear of the bus. At 6.55 p.m. in Erickson, Manitoba, Vincent Lee boarded the bus sitting in the front. Lee was described as a tall man in his 40s with a shaved head and sunglasses. Following a rest stop in Brandon, Lee moved to the back of the bus sitting next to Tim. McLean, quote-unquote, barely acknowledged his new seatmate and fell asleep against the window with his headphones on. Witnesses on the bus recalled the following events. While Tim was sleeping, Lee pulled out a large knife and began stabbing the sleeping man. He stabbed him in the chest and neck. When the attack began, the driver pulled over and escaped the bus with the other passengers. The driver and two other men tried to help McLean, but were lunged at by Lee. Lee then decapitated McLean and displayed the several head to the individuals outside of the bus. He then returned to the body and engaged in cannibalism, consuming other severed parts and some of McLean's flesh. At 8.30 p.m., the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP, received a call about the stabbing in Porridge Lock Prairie, and Lee was sitting in the bus when they arrived. The other passengers were preventing him from escaping, with the driver engaging the emergency immobilizer system to prevent Lee from driving away with the bus. By 9 p.m., a standoff had begun and a tactical unit was called in. During the standoff, Lee was seen defiling McLean's body, engaging in more acts of cannibalism and stating, quote, I have to stay on the bus forever, end quote. Eventually, at 1.30 a.m. on July 31st, Lee attempted to escape by breaking a window, and the RCMP arrested him shortly after. He was shot with a taser twice and then handcuffed and taken to the police station. Parts of the victim were found in a plastic bag with some parts found in Lee's pockets, including Tim's ear, tongue, and nose. While Lee denied consuming them, Tim's eyes and parts of his heart were never recovered. Lee's trial started on March 3, 2009, with Lee pleading not guilty due to mental disorder. His attorney stated that Lee's schizophrenia rendered him inculpable as he truly believed that McLean was a quote-unquote force of evil and a demon in disguise. Lee stated that McLean was an alien who needed to be destroyed and the mutilation of Tim's body was to ensure that he would not come back to life. 
Lee continued that he heard voices he believed were God pressuring him to perform the attack, and if he didn't kill McLean, Lee would be killed himself. The prosecutor agreed with the defense's assessment and both spoke in favor of involuntary commitment. The judge agreed finding Lee was not criminally responsible for the killing and remanded Lee to Selkirk Mental Health Center. There were calls for increased security on intercity buses. Greyhound Canada pulled an advertisement after the incident stating, quote, there's a reason you've never heard of bus rage, end quote, a week after the incident. There were several lawsuits as a result. The family of Tim McQueen filed suit against Lee, Greyhound, and the Attorney General of Canada, as well as the RCMP. The Canadian authorities were later dropped from the suit. Two passengers also sued Greyhound for being exposed to the beheading, but the case was later dropped. Ken Barker, one of the officers who witnessed Lee's cannibalism, later died by suicide due to post-traumatic stress disorder. There have also been several developments with Lee's commitment. On June 3, 2010, he was granted supervised outdoor walks. On May 17, 2012, he was granted temporary passes that would allow him to leave the mental health center while being supervised by a nurse and peace officer. He gave an interview during this time to the Schizophrenia Society of Canada, where he shared that his condition was improving slowly. He has been prescribed olanzapine and was learning more about his condition and coping mechanisms. Lee used this interview to express his remorse for his crime, stating, quote, he could never forget the Greyhound bus, end quote. He added that he believed he will never be happy and understands that the McLean family will never forgive him. He offered this apology to Tim's mother. He said, quote, I am sorry for killing your son. I am sorry for the pain I have caused. I wish I could reduce that pain, end quote. On February 27, 2015, Lee was granted unsupervised day visitations to Winnipeg along with a cell phone, and soon after, he was allowed to visit group homes. In February 2016, Lee changed his name to Will Lee Baker and requested to live independently. He won that right on February 26th. On February 10, 2017, the Manitoba Criminal Code Review Board ordered Lee to be discharged. He was granted an absolute discharge with no legal obligations or restrictions tied to his independent living. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the murder of Tim McLean and the sentence of Vince Lee? It's absolutely horrifying what happened to Tim. What a horrible, brutal way to die. He was minding his own business. He did absolutely nothing wrong. I mean, no one would really deserve for this to happen, but especially someone who was just there, wrong place, wrong time. I feel so sad for the people on the bus, too, that had to witness that. I can't even imagine. I would definitely have PTSD after that. And for Tim's family, knowing, again, like your son, your loved one died in such a brutal way that their last moments were filled with like so much pain and fear. And then to know that his body was dismembered and desecrated is heartbreaking. I have such mixed feelings about Vince's sentence because of course you want someone who clearly has a mental illness, you want them to get treatment and help for whatever condition they have with the goal to live independently. But I don't know the fact that he 
was granted absolute discharge. There's no legal obligations or restrictions. Like, I don't think he has to check in with anybody. I don't, I don't know for such a brutal thing that like seemingly happened out of nowhere. I don't know if that's right. There's no way to know for sure, like whether or not someone will commit another crime or have like a mental health episode. I mean, it sounds like he obviously has to be coping well and have his illness somewhat under control if he's on medication and he learned coping mechanisms and learned enough to be living independently. But there's no way it can 100% be ruled out. And, you know, I can understand people saying like, well, that's a people with schizophrenia and other mental health conditions shouldn't just be labeled as dangerous because they have these conditions. But I mean, this is a very unique and scary and violent crime that has not happened much. I think there needs to be a little more in place to make sure Vince that this doesn't happen again with him, whether it's independent living with like more uh, legal obligations or I don't know, more something set up in place, more check-ins for him. What do you think? I agree. This is definitely, and you know, like we said in the intro, the randomness of it is what really gives me pause about this case. He could have been sitting next to anyone, you know, and this was likely to happen. We know that he wasn't provoked. We know that, you know, there was nothing that Tim could really do to defend himself, you know, and the fact that he was lunging at other passengers and, you know, really displayed just uh, not understanding what he was really doing, which is why I think the insanity defense works, because who does that to a body and then displays it to other people? I definitely agree with you that PTSD is very understandable in this situation. It's really sad about the officer that um, lost his life. Being a police officer, they probably see things that are shocking, but this is just on a completely different level. When it comes to his sentence, I don't know. I have mixed feelings like you do because on one end, all right, you know, he got the help he needed. But I just felt like it should have been a situation of like, once he was clear mentally, he should have been transferred to a regular prison to serve out the rest of his sentence, like given a proper sentence and said like, you're going to spend 10 years in the mental health uh, facility and the other, you know, 15 in a standard prison once you're deemed, you know, mentally able to handle it. Because he was in jail for, what, six, seven years? Like six, seven years for a brutal murder that included cannibalism. Like, that's insane to me. I don't think that's enough time. Yeah, I know Tim's family was really upset about that, too. And they don't feel like he's really, like, that Tim and they have gotten justice, which I can understand for sure. Yeah, especially Tim's girlfriend at the time was pregnant. And so he had a son that was born a couple months after he passed away. And even the lawsuits have dragged on. Like the one that Tim's family had against Greyhound, Vince, and the government, even though the government got dropped and Tim's son was eventually added on, they still haven't settled. And it's like... 
you know that you're in the wrong or at least should compensate him. Most of it's going to go through your insurance. Like, I don't understand why it's taken so long to have a resolution of that. It's been over a decade at this point, almost 15 years. One of the most disturbing parts of this case is Vince Lee engaging in cannibalism and consuming pieces of Tim, including his heart. The other passengers who witnessed this from outside the bus reported vomiting and feeling extremely nauseous. Cannibalism is the act or practice of humans eating the flesh or internal organs of other human beings. Cannibalism has been well documented in much of the world, including Fiji, the, the Amazon Basin, the Congo, and the Minori people of New Zealand. Cannibalism has been practiced under a variety of circumstances and for various motives. There are three main types of cannibalism. Institutionalized cannibalism, sometimes called learned cannibalism, is the consumption of human body parts as an institutionalized practice generally accepted in the culture where it occurs. Survival cannibalism means the consumption of others under conditions of starvation, such as a shipwreck, military siege, and famine, in which persons normally averse to the idea are driven by the will to live. In other cases, cannibalism is an expression of psychopathology or mental disorder condemned by the society in which it occurs and considered to be an indicator of a severe personality disorder or psychosis. This is known as pathological cannibalism. There are also many subtypes of cannibalism. Medicinal cannibalism means, quote, the ingestion of human tissue as a supposed medicine or tonic, end quote. In contrast to other forms of cannibalism, which Europeans generally frowned upon, the quote unquote medicinal ingestion of various, quote, human body parts was widely practiced throughout Europe from the 17th to the 18th centuries, end quote with early records of the practice going back to the 1st century CE. Sacrificial cannibalism refers to the consumption of the flesh of victims of human sacrifice, for example, among the Aztecs. There are many negative health outcomes due to engaging in cannibalism. The most dangerous side effect is quote-unquote kuru, which occurs in the consumption of human brains. Kuru is a prion, a type of incurable progressive neurodegenerative disorder. Kuru-infected cannibals experience severe symptoms including a loss of motor skills, dementia, behavioral changes, and pathological outbursts of laughter or crying. Sometimes Kuru is referred to as the quote-unquote laughing death. In just one year after contracting crew, brain eaters are completely bedridden and unable to speak or swallow. As dementia sets in at full force, cannibals will not appear distressed about their health either. The combination of these symptoms eventually leads to death. Despite its infamy as one of the oldest taboo, cannibalism is not illegal in most parts of the United States. Cornell Law School states, quote, in the United States, there are no laws against cannibalism per se, but most, if not all, states have enacted laws that indirectly make it impossible to legally obtain and consume the body matter, end quote. They continue stating, quote, even if someone consents to being eaten and ends their own life, the cannibal may still be liable for criminal or civil actions based on laws governing the abuse or desecration of a corpse, which may vary by jurisdiction, end quote. 
There have been many well-known incidents of cannibalism throughout history. In October 1961, indigenous Papuans supposedly killed and ate Michael Rockefeller while he was exploring southern Netherlands, New Guinea. On June 11, 1981, Izzy Sakawa murdered a Dutch woman named Renee Hardevet by shooting her in the neck with a rifle at his home in Paris. After having sex with the corpse, he began to eat her, starting with the buttocks and thighs. In February 2000, Catherine Knight killed her partner, John Price, and cooked his corpse, later preparing to serve it to his children. In March 2001 in Germany, Armin Muse posted an internet ad seeking a young man willing to be slaughtered and eaten. The ad was answered by Bernard Brands. Muse stabbed Brands in the neck with a kitchen knife, kissing him first and then chopped him up into several pieces. He placed several pieces of Brands in the freezer. Over the next few weeks, Muse defrosted and cooked parts of Brands and olive oil and garlic, and eventually consumed 20 kilograms of human flesh. Muse was convicted of manslaughter in 2004. In a 2003 drug-related case, the rap artist Big Lurch was convicted of the murder and partial consumption of an acquaintance while both was under the influence of PCP. In April and March of 2010, PhD student Stephen Griffiths from Bradford, England, killed and ate three prostitutes, becoming known as the crossbow cannibal. On August 16, 2016, 19-year-old Florida State University student Austin Harford fatally stabbed the couple, Michelle Minchikon and John Stevens, in their garage and began eating Stevens' face before being subdued by deputies. Jenny, what are your thoughts on cannibalism, its status as not illegal in most parts of New Jersey, and these well-known incidents? It's shocking that it's not, like, necessarily legal, per se. I don't know. Maybe that's one of those things where they assume people think it's, like, immoral and that no one will do it and then they just like handle it from there i don't know i guess it also maybe goes to show how like uncommon it is so maybe they didn't feel the need to make a lot i don't know i think it's kind of bizarre i wanted to say koru i think has like and the prions historically like that is kind of where like zombies come from like if you We'll go into some of these symptoms like loss of motor skills, dementia, being bedridden, like or unable to speak or swallow. Like that is kind of like zombie, what we would think of as like zombie behavior. So some of like folklore, I guess, like we what we know around zombies, like is related to this. And it is like, I don't know, I think it's interesting that I guess interesting is maybe like a weird thing to say, but it's interesting that it will make you sick, especially if you eat someone's brain. I don't know. I think that's kind of fascinating. And I guess it also kind of goes into like horror and like sci-fi stuff that we were, I'm sure all familiar with hearing all of these cases, especially like over the last like 20 or so years, I mean, you named multiple cases. So even though it is rare, it is like shocking to see them all listed out together. 
especially the one in Germany where someone was like willingly, like willfully let their body be consumed, allow themselves to be murdered and eaten. That's really interesting to me. And I feel like I've maybe heard of this before. The one in 2016 with the Florida student, I had definitely heard of that too. And then the rapper, that's a really um, big lurch is a really crazy case and story. So I would say like, look into that if you're a little more interested. What do you think about all this? Yeah, I agree. Just seeing them all together is like, what is going on with people? I mean, I was familiar with a lot of these stories before the writing process, but just going back and reading the details of it, you just like, you can't really compute in your brain like how someone gets to that point. Um, And I agree that one in Germany with Armin Muse definitely stands out because of, you know, having a willing participant. And it just brings up the question of, can you consent to something like this? And in Germany, the answer is no. But, you know, we would have to see what happens in different countries to see if that would actually be a thing. In the United States, it definitely seems like it wouldn't. But I think a lot of people connect that to freedom and being able to make your own choices, which, I mean, I understand, but also it's like, ooh, this might be a bridge too far. The one with Vic Lurch, I don't know. It just always reminds me of the dangers of PCP. I feel like anytime PCP is mentioned, some wild, crazy stuff is attached to it. So whether that be like people eating others' faces off, whether it be I had watched a YouTube video and someone, a man, cut off parts of his own uh, appendage down there because he was high on PCP. So yeah, it's you never know what you're going to do when you are under the influence, right? I definitely think this is a topic that continues to be explored, although it is rare because it's so unique. I think that's why it gets a lot more press than other types of paraphilias. Very similar to how uh, necrophilia is very rare. But when it does happen, people tend to talk about it a lot. Lee successfully used the insanity defense after being charged with the murder of Tim McLean. The insanity defense, also known as the mental disorder defense, is an affirmative defense by excuse in a criminal case, arguing that the defendant is not responsible for their actions due to a psychiatric disease at the time of the criminal act. According to an eight-state study, the insanity defense is used in less than 1% of all court cases and, when used, has only a 26% success rate. Of those that were successful, 90% of the defendants had been previously diagnosed with mental illness. The insanity defense is recognized in Australia, Canada, England and Wales, Hong Kong, India, and the Republic of Ireland, New Zealand, Norway, and most states within the U.S., with the exception of Idaho, Kansas, Montana, Utah, and Vermont. Legal definitions of insanity or mental disorder are varied and include the McNaughton Rule, the 1953 British Royal Commission on Capital Punishment Report, 
the ALI rule, and other provisions often relating to a lack of mens rea or a quote-unquote guilty mind. The McNaughton rule is that any variant of the 1840s jury instruction in a criminal case when there is a defense of insanity. It states, quote, that every man is to be presumed to be sane and that to establish a defense on the ground of insanity, it must be clearly proved that at the time of the committing of the act, the party accused was laboring under such a defect of reason from disease of the mind as not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing, or if he did know it, that he did not know what he was doing was wrong, end quote. The rule was formulated as a reaction to the acquittal in 1843 of Daniel McNaughton on the charge of murdering Edward Drummond. McNaughton had shot Drummond after mistakenly identifying him as the British Prime Minister Robert Peel, who was the intended target. The House of Lords asked a panel of judges presided over by Sir Nicholas Conningham Tyndall, Chief Justice of the Common Pleas, a series of hypothetical questions about the defense of insanity. The principles expounded by this panel have come to be known as the quote-unquote Manon Rules. Though they have gained any status only by usage in the common law and McNaughton himself would have been found guilty if they had been applied at his trial. When the tests set out by the rules are satisfied, the accused may be adjudged, quote unquote, not guilty by reason of insanity or, quote unquote, guilty but insane. And the sentence may be a mandatory or discretionary, but otherwise indeterminate period of treatment in a secure hospital facility or otherwise at the discretion of the court, depending on the country and the offense charged, instead of a punitive disposal. The Royal Commission on Capital Punishment, 1949 to 1953, reviewed the application of the death penalty in the United Kingdom, including the questions of what crimes should receive the death penalty and what method of execution should be employed. It also made recommendations responding to criticisms of rules for the insanity defense in a criminal case. It responded to the McNaughton rule that a person is legally insane if a mental disease prevents their knowledge of the nature or quality of their criminal act or that the act is wrong and irresistible impulse rules that mental disease caused a lack of violational control, even if defendant knew the nature and quality of his or her and that it was wrong. The report said, quote, the jury should be left to determine whether at the time of the act, the accused was suffering from disease of the mind or mental deficiency to such a degree that he ought not be held responsible, end quote. The American Legal Institute Model Penal Code Rule, or ALI rule, is a recommended rule for instructing juries on how to find a defendant in a criminal trial is not guilty by reason of insanity. It brought in the McNaughton rule of whether a defendant was so mentally ill that he is unable to quote-unquote know the nature and quality of his criminal act or know his wrongfulness to a question of whether he had quote, substantial capacity to appreciate the criminality of his conduct, end quote. It also added a component as to whether the defendant was lacking in, quote, substantial capacity to conform 
his conduct to the law, end quote. The ALI rule has two parts. The first is, quote, a person is not responsible for criminal conduct if at the time of such conduct as a result of mental disease or defect, he lacks substantial capacity either to appreciate criminality of his conduct or to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law, end quote. The second part is, quote, as used in this article, the terms mental disease or defect do not include an abnormality manifested only by repeated criminal or otherwise antisocial conduct, end quote. An important distinction to be made is the difference between competency and criminal responsibility. The issue of competency is whether a defendant is able to adequately assist their attorney in preparing a defense, make informed decisions about trial strategy and whether to plead guilty, accept a plea agreement, or plead not guilty. Competency largely deals with the defendant's present condition, while criminal responsibility addresses the condition at the time the crime was committed. In the United States, a trial in which the insanity defense is invoked typically involves the testimony of psychiatrists or psychologists who will, as expert witnesses, present opinions on the defendant's state of mind at the time of the defense. Depending on jurisdiction, circumstances, and crime, intoxication may be a defense, a mitigating factor, or an aggravating factor. Most jurisdictions differentiate between voluntary intoxication and involuntary intoxication. In some cases, intoxication, usually involuntary intoxication, may be covered by the insanity defense. In the United States, those that have been found not guilty by reason of mental disorder or insanity are generally then required to undergo psychiatric treatment in a mental institute, except in the case of temporary insanity. In the majority of states, the burden of proving insanity is placed on the defendant who must prove insanity by a preponderance of the evidence. In a minority of states, the burden is placed on the prosecution who must prove sanity beyond reasonable doubt. In federal court, the burden is placed on the defendant who must prove insanity by clear and convincing evidence. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the insanity defense, and do you think its successfulness will increase or decrease over time? When it comes to increasing or decreasing, I feel like a lot more people are talking about mental health right now, and maybe more people are being diagnosed with mental health issues, disorders, illness because of that. So maybe I can see it increasing. I mean, it's already such a small percentage. I can see maybe increasing, but it's, I don't think it's going to be like a huge jump or anything like that. I still think it's going to be like rarely used and like hard to prove. I feel like for as rare as it is, it seems like a lot of the most publicized cases do use it. So I think it skews the public's perception. I know a lot of people say like, oh, of course he pled uh, to insanity. You know, he did it, but he just, you know, is saying that. And I feel like that doesn't really happen as much as is in reality I guess you also see that a lot in like movies and tv shows too people pleading insanity I do think that it's definitely like a very valid defense and mental health issues are very real and in a lot of cases it makes you do things you otherwise wouldn't they're not like fun 
to deal with, to, you know, hear voices that tell you to hurt someone or to make you feel unsafe and paranoid. Like that's the reality a lot of people are dealing with to varying degrees. I think it's kind of interesting that intoxication is sometimes can fall under that defense. I mean, again, being intoxicated does sometimes make you do things you otherwise wouldn't do when you are in like a more sound mental state. So I thought that was kind of interesting. What do you think of it all? I definitely uh, think the insanity defense is a reasonable defense to put on and definitely makes sense when you look at the effect that going through a mental health crisis can do to a person. That includes just the effects that it has on the behaviors that people are willing to engage in. And, you know, like the standards say, just their understanding of how wrong something is or the effect that it's going to have on others. I don't think that a lot of people are using it as a way to try to get away with different crimes. There's so much that you have to do to prove that you were under mental health crisis during the state of a crime. I think other defenses are definitely used more in a frivolous way than the insanity uh, defense. Especially since if you look at the numbers, it's not even that successful. If you think about it, only 26% actually works. So why would you go through all that for something that's not even above 50% working? You have a one in four chance of it actually being successful. I think that my only criticism of it is like what we spoke about before. I do wish that after mental health treatment, they were transferred to a standard prison or jail instead of just being released. Or maybe even like a halfway house or some sort of other program to help them to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again and to make sure that they're actually going to stick to whatever psychiatric regimen actually helped them to get better. I think the successfulness, I think the rate of it is going to stay the same. I don't see any reason why people will be more likely to agree that a mental deficiency caused someone to commit a crime or not. But I do think the use of it might increase because like you said, people are more willing to talk about it. So people, I think, are more apt to use that as like a, oh, you know, I just want to provide this clarification for this crime. I don't know how often it's going to be used in serious crimes, but definitely lower level offenses. I can see it being used. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the murder of Tim McLean. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on missing persons cases. As always, stay safe.